God has really blessed me. You know, he let me work in DC, let me work with EIB and Hollywood and Silicon Valley. And he's shown me through all those experiences that there is one problem and one solution, and that's why we do this show. Welcome to A Disciple's View with Todd Herman. When the God of the universe created the world, he didn't snap his fingers or wink his eye. He simply spoke. Lord God said, let there be light. And because we believe we speak about the happenings in this world, mindful that our true home is with Jesus Christ in his kingdom. Welcome to a disciple's view. I'm Todd Herman. If you've been listening for a little while, you know that we often start the program by imagining what would be the top story in God's universe. And God's universe is the entire universe, the creator of all. We can't think like him. We can consult his word. We can be with his people. We can be in prayer with him. We can consult the Holy Spirit. Those of us who have given our lives to the Lord Jesus have the Holy Spirit indwelled within us, which is really having the kingdom of heaven indwelled within us. And the top story I don't think changes. I think it is right now that redemption is still there for everybody, the free gift of being saved from our sin. That's, I think, the top story in God's mind. I think that would have to be it. There are temporal stories that give us a hint, I think, as to where this world is headed, and it lines right up with the book of Revelation. And of course it does. It has to, because the book of Revelation and all the happenings within it have come to pass in in God's world, operating outside of time. When he says a thing will occur, it will occur. We'll spend some time in the next segment from this talking from a very biblical perspective about a way that we can measure our faith walk. Actually, in in terms of a business phrase, KPI, have you heard that? Key performance indicator. I was just thinking about how we could apply key performance indicators to our faith walk. We'll talk about that next segment. This segment, I want to talk about something temporal, which gives us a strong indication of where the bosses of this country want to take us. I didn't say elected officials or politicians. That's not who's doing it. Oh, they're participating. But I don't think they understand yet the depths of that in which they're participating. This has been hinted at. It's been discussed a little bit. It's happening in bits by bits coming out as God unveils the corruption in this world. We'll talk about this more completely tomorrow. The FBI went out and interviewed Catholic priests and choir directors as they were probing churches, attempting to create this report to indicate that traditional Catholics are domestic terrorists, that they're a threat to this nation. This would be the same government that has determined that white nationalism is the biggest threat to this nation, that there are millions, apparently, of white supremacist army members ready to seize control of this country. You remember the fences that went up around state capitals when Joe Biden was installed in office. You know, it it was a pretense. It was an act. We were protecting our state capitals against these armies of white supremacists crouched right outside the cities ready to seize power, especially if the nation lifted the COVID controls. Do you remember that time? This past week, we learned that because a woman posted something on social media joking, saying, this looks like me, don't turn me in, LOL, she got a knock on her door by the FBI. 
came to talk with her. This is not a limited thing to the FBI. What if I told you that the United States military contractors are using the exact same tactics that they use in other countries against us? Well, this has been clear for some time, but now we have documents that indicate just how completely this has been done. It's called a counterinsurgency. You have friends who are former special forces, retired special forces. Want to know how I met them? Is on my program, my old local show in Seattle, I started talking about the prepping of the environment for the COVID lockdowns, for the rush towards the modified RNA injections, and prepping the environment for the cultural revolution. I started to talk about the mental prepping of the environment. And the guy who's retired special forces reached out to me. He said, how do you know about prepping environments? I said, well, I read. I observe. He said, well, you're using some phrases that would indicate to me you understand Maoist tactics. Oh, yes. And we become fast friends. And I count him now as a dear friend. He was paid to do this in other countries to go and prep the environment for a United States-based revolution in their countries. This is something that our soldiers have done. I've talked to Mike about this now. Does he ever regret doing this? And he says no, because it was in defense of liberty. And he and I differ on the Ukraine war. He believes it's a war we have to fight, and I count him as a dear friend. But the tactics should not be being used against us, and they are. And the United States military contractors are doing it. They're not doing this of their own volition. Someone has told them to do this. There's a fantastic piece in Substack. It's a a Substack called Public, public public.substack.com, written by Alex Gutnig. And I got here through a friend, Chris Bray. Chris is also a writer on Substack and a brilliant man and a, uh, a military veteran, Chris is, of the Army. Chris had noticed that as Chris Christie, former governor, uh, has failed to make the ballot in Maine, the man will not be on the ballot. He couldn't get the necessary 2,000 signatures in a state of 1.4 million people and some 300,000 registered Republicans he could not get on the ballot. But man, he was all over the weekend TV shows. He was all over national television. Liz Cheney lost her seat in Congress. She also made the rounds to talk about her new book. So how does this tie in to the military? Their contractors using counterinsurgency tactics against us? It ties in this way. Those are the faces and the points of view that they want us to hear and know others. Those faces and voices are telling us that Donald John Trump is literally Hitler. And he's literally going to destroy the country. And he's literally installing a dictatorship, even as the weapons of counterinsurgencies are pointed against us. Yes, it's been hinted at. 
We've had Senator Mike Lee hint at the fact that this is happening. He's talking about a huge database of your conversations that the government has found that it has the right to help itself to. And then you allow them to search those databases and that the contents of those phone calls without a warrant, you've got a problem. You're going to hear things like, this will make it too hard for the government. It will be more difficult for the government to get the information that it wants. Well, big surprise. That's the whole point of the Fourth Amendment. Yes, that is the point. It's supposed to be hard. So from this piece in public.substack.com, defense and intelligent funding supports much of the censorship industrial complex. For instance, Grafica, which was involved in both, um, there's, it, these, these are the Election Integrity Project is one of these censorship industrial complexes that happens to come out of Stanford University. So that was involved in, in, in these, these actions, receives grants from the Department of Defense, DARPA, and the Navy. These are the groups that censored narratives about the election, not just specific posts, narratives. They're the ones who also pressured media to lie about the Hunter Biden report, to lie about President Trump being a tool of Russia. Your tax dollars were also used to pressure companies into changing their terms of service so as to better censor you. Back to this piece. Pentagon and affiliated entities are heavily involved in the, quote, anti-disinformation work. Uh, Mitra, a major defense contractor, received funding to tackle disinformation about elections and COVID. The U.S. government paid Mitra and organizations staffed by former intelligence and military personnel to monitor and report what Americans said about the virus online and to develop so-called vaccine confidence messaging. This government-backed military research public discovered was present in the Election Integrity Project, their misinformation reporting system, and in election disinformation reports to CISA. That's a government group that uh, has appointed itself the censors of all censors. So what did they do? This framework also included many counters that have yet to uh, find concrete evidence for, but which we suspect may have been attempted to infiltrate the groups to discredit leaders. To honeypot with coordinated inauthentic. So this would mean to put into public fake COVID news and fake election news, hoping that people like me would grab it and merchandise it for them, co-opting a hashtag to drown it out or to hijack it. They do know that these groups employed bots. These are simply fake accounts on social media meant to replicate the message time and time and time again. And that's obvious to anyone who uses social media. What is not as obvious, but we now have proof, is that this was backed by military dollars from the Pentagon. Now, ask yourself this question, please. Why is the Pentagon interested in driving narratives in our country? Because they view us as an insurgency. You only use counterinsurgency tactics against an insurgent force. So how are we an insurgent force? Can I tell you what I think has happened? And this is my supposition. Social media, for all its ills, has provided voice to many, many independent thinkers. I'll give you an example. And this is a weird one because I am not allowed to say the guy's actual name. But I can tell you, I know exactly who he is. And he is former Navy Intel, a former Navy Intel asset. 
and he does very high-level consulting work for governments and businesses. Entire nations turn to him for data analysis. He calls himself ethical skeptic, and he has a Substack himself and a Twitter account, which is well-followed. I've had him on my program once, and it's a security risk to have him on again. So I've spoken with him, and I've verified his identity. He's a guy who just simply analyzes data. As he began to look at the COVID flu and the response to that, none of it made sense from a perspective of data. So he really began to dig in. And he's one of the guys who surfaced very early on the fact that COVID was in the wild some two years before the governments of the nations decided to use it to scare us. He's also now tracking the modified RNA ejection deaths. Now, he doesn't just track. He triangulates with hundreds and hundreds and sometimes thousands of sources of data. He's one of the people who has come around to say these injections are probably killing, have probably killed 17 million people. His data matches up with a lot of other independent data analysts. This gives voice to a counter narrative. This, I think, is why Washington, D.C. views us as an insurgency, because suddenly we have the power of disseminating information. We also have the power of finding like-minded people. We have the power now to look at Washington, D.C. and say they're aligned against us, to look at bipartisanship no longer as a great good, but so often something that they aim at us to harm us. This frightens the people in D.C., Because I will tell you, I sat in the office of a Texas congressman, and he told me to my face, Todd, if the American people actually understood what's going on here, that this is an actual raiding of the treasury, they would be here with pitchforks and torches. He told me that to my face in a one-on-one meeting. Well, we're not there with pitchforks, torches, But the people in Washington, D.C. know what they've done. And they think they can prevent us from knowing more about it. Well, God knows. Everything whispered in the dark will one day be shouted from the rooftops. So they may think they're hiding, but they're not. We'll come back and I'll share with you this idea I have for using key performance indicators to track our walk with God and the people around us. I'm Todd Herman. This is A Disciples View. This is Viewpoints with Kirby Anderson. Just over a week ago, a poll published in the Wall Street Journal revealed that most Americans see the American dream slipping away. Only a third of voters said the American dream holds true compared to a majority of American voters who said that in 2012. Derek Hunter argues in a recent column that the American dream is not dead. What is dead is most people's idea of what that phrase means. The poll defined the American dream as the proposition that anyone who works hard can get ahead, regardless of their background. He responds that the U.S. is not like Lake Wobegon, where everybody's above average. Instead, the American dream, he argues, is a shot at success at every level. 
The U.S. is still the land of opportunity, but it is that vision that is marred by the left-wing educational complex. He says white kids are taught that they've got all the advantages because of their skin color, and young black people are taught that the country is racist. But he argues that the true oppression in this country comes from so many people talking about oppression. You can't tell young people to work hard and get ahead if they reject the American dream and are convinced they can never succeed. He says young people have all been marinated in a culture of entitlement that denigrates the concept of earning. Even the concept of hard work is nearly dead because everyone wants to be Kim Kardashian now. He is convinced that this pervasive sense of entitlement is true oppression. There certainly are barriers to success and achievement, but you won't be successful if you refuse to work hard and use your God-given talents if you start with the flawed assumption that the system is rigged against you. I'm Kirby Anderson, and that's my point of view. For a free copy of Kirby's booklet, A Biblical View on Anti-Semitism, go to viewpoints.info slash anti-Semitism. Viewpoints.info slash anti-Semitism. I'm Peter Rosenberger, and this is your Caregiver Minute. You ever notice that we're often put on the spot to somehow fix whatever happens to be the crisis of the day or the hour? Some folks feel free to point out the obvious as if we can't see it, and then impatiently demand that we come up with an answer. Caregivers don't need others to rehash the same problem we've obsessed over, nor do we need folks to place another unreasonable request on our shoulders. Asking those individuals for solutions and then just being quiet gives them a moment's pause to consider the complexity of our world as caregivers. While everyone has opinions, few have solutions, and even less have the humility to walk with you in suffering when no solutions are apparent. Asking complainers to give me a solution is a great way to redirect their complaining energy and, if needs be, send them on their way. This has been your Caregiver Minute with Peter Rosenberger, brought to you by Standing with Hope. There's more information at standingwithhope.com. Have you ever heard the phrase, if it's not measured, it can't be improved? If you work in business, you have. What if we could apply this to our walk with the Lord and the walk that people around us are having with the Lord? Welcome back to Disciples View. I'm Todd Herman. That's, that's a phrase we use a lot in business. If it's not measured, it can't be improved. And we've also heard this, success has many fathers, failures an orphan. So we also, in business, made sure that people are responsible for KPIs, key performance indicators. And depending on what you did for a living within a big organization, I used to work at Microsoft back in the day. And that's really where I received formal management training. Prior to that, I was mentored, great mentors who helped me understand how to lead and, and how to facilitate difference between leading and facilitating. So all of these things are helpful in business. And back when I worked in business, uh, I was one of the people at, at Microsoft who said, hey, I want a dashboard. I want to have a, a, a leadership dashboard. And I asked my uh, chief of staff, Bettina, what would it take for me to have a dashboard? So instead of having to read spreadsheets and reports that I could pull up on my computer in the morning 
and look at the KPIs for our little tiny business unit. And Bettina figured that out, and we built this dashboard. So it was how many video views. I ran a, um, organiz- I, I ran a, a product group that did online video before YouTube, et cetera, and as YouTube was starting. So we could pull up on the dashboard and look at video views, ad impressions, growth rates, share rates, how many people were sharing this. And that, 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 when, I, when I showed that to other managers, they said, where'd you get that? Well, we built it because we didn't have it here. So it was an early form of data visualization. So why am I mentioning this on a radio show with God at the center and, and conservative politics way out at the edges? Here's why. What if we could take the same approach with our lives and our walk with God? Uh, not necessarily data visualization, but why not? Why not? And I was thinking about this in terms of how being a discipled Christian has changed my approach to things and how gaining the skill of letting the Holy Spirit run my life has delivered great fruits and some processes that I'm undertaking mentally to make sure that I am am following that path and following the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and living in the fruit of the Spirit. So as I looked at this, I realized that had I had these tools earlier on, I could have avoided some of the biggest mistakes in my life, and particularly a, a particularly painful one. And that has to do with something that, well, happened to our daughter. And I didn't, I noticed things were different, but I didn't have the toolkit. I hadn't availed myself of it to check and see. Like, what's going on? A dashboard. So if we take, for instance, the fruit of the Spirit, and if you are new to the Bible or, or, well, yeah, new to the Bible, this is from Galatians in the Bible, chapter 5, verse 23 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, peace, joy, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. So we take the fruit of the Spirit and we create a mental dashboard. How are we doing at being in the fruit of the Spirit? We sort of take our temperature. Now, that's us. What if we extend that to our friends? What if we extend to our friends the ability to, the the permission to speak into our lives that way? See, we do this in discipled Christian communities that we extend this to our friends. They have the permission to speak into us. And to say, hey, I am not observing in you a lot of forbearance or kindness these days. Let's, how can we help you? How can we help you get back into the fruit of the Spirit? It's also a self-assessment tool at the end of the day. How did I do? But it's something else. It allows us to develop a form of spiritual immunity against the world. And I would say as well, temporal immunity, that is time-based immunity while we're here. There is the eternal, there's the time-based. So if we're thinking of people in our lives or meeting a new person or we're thinking of going to work at a place, we can step back with that mental dashboard and say, do I observe love, joy, peace, 
forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in this environment? Do I observe this with my kids' friends? Now, obviously, there's a maturity level here, and obviously, not everyone's ever, ever perfect at this. I mean, only one person was, and that was the Lord Jesus, and he's both God and man and still is still obviously God, always has been God. So only one person has ever been perfect. That was when Jesus took on our, our human form and did that. But think of the toolkit that we have to be able to apply to all sorts of world circumstances. Voting. Who do you vote for? Well, look, what if, what if we're going to we'll say, hey, who do I see and who do I see love? What does, how does that manifest? We'll get to that. Joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, good luck finding a politician who in, in, in embodies those things in our broken world and broken system and, and ego-driven, terribly broken, horribly evil city. D.C. is a horribly evil city. There are good people who live there, and it's a horribly, hideously evil, fallen city. So we have to temper our expectations. But on that topic of love, if we take Galatians 5, 23 to 23, and then we cross-reference love, well, what is love? In the world, love is sex, and sex is love. Love is um, it, it's obsession. I feel obsessed about a person, or I'm fascinated by a person. Uh, I, I I can't stop thinking about a person. So there's a word I'm 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 losing. It's not obsession, but utter fascination with a person. Well, that's not love. No, infatuation. It could be infatuation. You're infatuated with a person. One way to know the difference is if you don't know a person well and you think you love them, you don't. You're infatuated, you're attracted, you're sexually attracted, you're biologically attracted, all those things. But that's not love. How do I know? Because you go to the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. So on a personal basis... We can step and see, are we being loving people? Well, are you boasting? Do you have envy? If you have envy for somebody, good luck loving them. Because you are not doing it as a verb. If people are boastful, if we become boastful, if we become proud, if we're dishonoring others, well, then we are not expressing love. And if we go back to Galatians Spirit, the, but the fruit of the Spirit, first word is love. So how do you know you have love? Well, because you're loving as a verb, as a series of verbs. And there's things you don't do when you're experiencing love for somebody. So again, back to this database or this, this, um, uh, this, this dashboard metaphor of having a mental dashboard. Now, you could build an app for this. I mean, it would be something that you share with your friends. That, hey, how do you think I'm doing in the fruit of the Spirit lately? But it's also something we could do on a family meeting basis. And this is where I utterly failed. As a young man, non-discipled, I didn't know how to run a family meeting based upon the Word of God. I mean, post-therapy, we had check-ins and a formalized process of, hey, I want to see how everybody's doing, what's coming up for people emotionally, check-ins. But based upon what measure? There's behind me on the wall because I am, I am speaking to you today from home. Uh, the high mountains of free America, North Idaho. And behind me on the wall is something that's a dashboard. 
but it's a dashboard I didn't heed. And it's pictures of my, my daughter. I didn't heed the dashboard. I didn't notice something at the time. I see it every time those pictures go up. And every time I notice it, it gives me pause. How did I not see this? So imagine a world where a business meeting, where you have KPI meetings, you have meetings where you sit down to discuss your key performance indicators as a management team. How are we doing on, on, same, store, on, on, um, on same store sales? How are we doing on repeat visits? Uh, how are we doing with revenue per square foot? I, I don't know what business you're in. How are we doing in new loans if you're a bank, et cetera? So whatever business you're in, how are we doing? You have these KPIs. You have meetings. You have, you have them at churches, right? Churches have KPIs. How are we doing in, a, in a, a church that's leaning far into the materialist world starts with, hey, what's tithing look like? How many people do we have in the seats? Churches that follow a different methodology, which is a methodology of the kingdom of, do we see disciples being made? Are people bringing new people to church? Are we observing in our small group growth? Do we have, how many people do we have in small groups? How many people do we have in life groups? What percentage of the new, uh, of the, of new attenders to church become members? And then how many of them become disciple makers? And how many are serving in ministry, outward bound? J.D. Greer wrote a great book, Pastor J.D. Greer, Winning by Losing, which is you want your church to be people who lose its best members because they go into the world and they make disciples and they plant churches. So what it is, you're having these business meetings and these, 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 um, these ministry assessment meetings. Well, what about a family meeting? You sit down and say, how's everybody feeling in terms of the fruit of the Spirit? Are you feeling loved? What's been your sense of joy? How about peace? Are we being forbearing with one another? Long-suffering? Are we being patient? Kind? Are we being good to one another? Are you as, are we being faithful to one another? Well, that's, that's a marriage discussion, isn't it? Well, yeah, we're not cheating on one another. Well, are your hearts with another? Have you self, found yourself fa- fascinated with someone of the opposite sex? Have you developed any close relationships with members of the opposite sex? If so, it's not a big accusation. Oh my gosh, everybody's having an emotional affair, but it could be, hey, what do you feel there? Like, what are you experiencing? Well, I feel welcomed or respected or seen in ways maybe I don't hear. Help me understand. Help me understand how you're feeling that. I am your husband. I want you to feel that for me, or I am your wife. I, I, want, that, I, I, I want to feel that from you. Just imagine meetings like this. Are we displaying self-control? So you're taking spiritual KPIs, key performance indicators, and you are applying them to your family life. Likewise, you can have meetings with friends. Your life group, are you observing these things in me? I mentioned this wall behind me. So I'm in the radio studio we built in the home. And I know that right behind me, there's a wall of pictures. And they start with my little girl at Christmas time. That's what, that's what the wall is. From little baby, pictures with Santa. And that's another issue. We're not going to go have pictures with someone pretending to be the Lord Jesus, God forbid. Uh, but we'll talk about that later this week. But there's pictures of her enjoying her time with Santa. And happy, joyful kid. Through the years with these pictures, 
Some of them with her little dog. One of them with a stuffed animal. One of them with the best Santa we ever had who actually talked to her about Jesus as as she was on his knee. He had a real beard. And then there's a certain year where she's blank-faced. There's no emotion on her face. This was a year she decided to change her, her hair completely to make it less cute. There's no joy in her face. There's an absence of peace because into her life came not kindness, but brutality. Not goodness, but evil. And the very opposite of someone being faithful to her and using her in ways that someday is a story she will tell. As a parent, I noticed the changes, but I put it down to teen adolescent angst, and there's good reason for that. Being a teen girl or pre or or, or, a, or, or adolescent girl is brutal in this world. But I didn't have the spiritual KPI, key performance indicators, to say, my little girl has fallen out of the fruit of the Spirit. I don't see in her joy, peace, forbearance, kindness. Not to herself. Well, what's happened? If I were to assess the people around her, her friends, I would say they're boastful. Envious, proud. They dishonor her. They're self-seeking. They're angry. They don't have any form of the love of Christ. And I would have noticed something else. These changes were robbing my daughter of something she had possessed. Well, Satan cannot snatch us from God's hand, but he can torment us. What's more tormenting than taking from a child the sense of peace, kindness, goodness, safety? In our therapeutic walk across three years, that's a theme that she continually expressed. I used to feel safe. I used to feel valuable. And then I felt broken and worth less than I was. I missed that, the degree to which it had harmed her, because I wasn't discipled. Let's use spiritual KPIs, key performance indicators. We'll come back with the Tower Babbling. I'm Todd Herman. This is The Disciples View. Spreading the love and message of Jesus just got easier. The Christmas Bundle helps break the ice and open the door to share the gospel. It contains a Christmas shirt, three Christmas button or wristband 10-packs, eight ounces of Noel coffee, the Advent Alphabet book, a Hope of All the Earth CD, and a 10-pack of Isaiah 9-6 stickers, all at a very special price. Get your Christmas Bundle today at resources.afa.net. 
Hi, I'm Matt Ayers, president of Wesley Biblical Seminary. Do you want to be prepared for ministry at an institution that you can trust? Wesley Biblical Seminary has been training trusted leaders for faithful churches for almost 50 years. In a nation where many denominations and theological institutions are caving to cultural pressure, Wesley Biblical Seminary is standing strong on God's truth. Earn your bachelor's or master's degree to equip you for faithful and fruitful ministry. Learn more at wbs.edu. In churches, and a lot of churches today, the issue of identity is sort of like the big elephant in the room. It's in the news, but it's not in the church. So if it's in society, it needs to be something the churches are addressing. In His Image, delighting in God's plan for gender and sexuality is now available for church screenings and events. Every person in America needs to see this. And all pastors need to show this to the church, get the people informed. If the church and Jesus isn't the answer, where's the world going? We want the message of the film to touch as many hearts and lives as possible. And we'd love to join with you to bring the film to your community. So let's say you have a small group or your church, or we've even been bringing the film into some prisons. We want to partner with you. So what we'll do is we'll send you a special kit and it's completely free and it'll just have some extra resources to help you promote your event. To find out more about how to host an event, go to inhisimage.movie and click on the host an event tab. That's inhisimage.movie. It blows my mind that that on average it's about 90 percent mm -hmm. of our communication is around almost like administrating our marriage, having a business meeting. This is Focus on the Family Minute with Dr. Greg Smalley. And the problem is, if that's all we end up talking about, quite honestly, the, the marriage can get boring. Like if I know that anytime Aaron and I are gonna talk, we're probably gonna work out who's doing what or whatever, it, it, it robs us then of really, as Aaron was saying, learning and updating each other below the waterline. We call that inner life conversation. The problem is that that sort of conversation when I'm finding out, how are you really feeling? What's stressing you out? What are you dreaming about? What, whatever, what's going on in your life? That stuff will never happen on its own. Hear more marriage wisdom at familyminute.org. because he's won the primary. Well, I mean, he has. Statistically speaking, it's at this point pretty impossible for someone to catch up with him. I'm not making an endorsement, by the way. We're not able to do that on AFR. And I would vote for either Trump or DeSantis in a heartbeat. And there's things in which I prefer DeSantis and some areas in which I prefer President Trump. So I'm not making an endorsement. I'm asking a question. Welcome back to Disciples View. I'm Todd Herman. Coming up, we'll get to the Tower of Babbling. Uh, the Hill is out with an article where they indicate who they think are going to be the uh, likely uh, VP picks for President Trump, and I just wanted to go through some of them. First one they pick is South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem, known for some time has been seen as a favorite to be Trump's next running mate. I have no enthusiasm for Kristi Noem, none whatsoever. She's a liar. She's a liar. On the single most important issue in her state, she's a liar. When a group of, uh, of billionaires 
like the founders of Netflix and LinkedIn, U2's Bono, the lead singer, one of the songwriters of, of, of U2, um, and companies back from, uh, from Korea and China, came to her state and began the process of seizing family farms to steal them and build a pipeline that would transport carbon dioxide, the actual thing that we exhale, you know, that gas that we're told is such a deadly, horrible thing that is killing all the seals and all the children and causing all the hurricanes and all the earthquakes. Yeah, that gas. They want to build a pipeline to store what we exhale. The same thing that we're told is terrible poison. And they want to use it to make products like, and this is going to sound, some of them bizarre, some, something called turbo diesel, which would be a blessing in terms of powering our economy, what a blessing. And believe it or not, Bill Gates, who has our best interest at heart, just ask him, he has a patent to turn carbon dioxide into digestible protein. Mmm, sounds good. For his Frankenmeats fake foods. So when that happens in these foreign-backed companies, we're going about seizing family farms and going to these farms without permission and videoing the farms. Christy Nome did nothing. Nothing. I hope not to sound prideful when I say this, but according to two state, well, a state senator and a state rep in South Dakota, my podcast did more to fight that than Christy Nome. Ultimately, the State Utility Commission refused to give a license to these firms, but not because the governor did anything. She's a liar. She says that uh, property rights are her biggest issue. No, they're not. Not when foreign money's coming into her state apparently matter more. So for me, I've, I have no regard for Christy Nome, someone who can't tell the truth about the core issue of her state. Why would I want her to be VP for anybody, DeSantis or President Trump? Tim Scott. Uh, Tim Scott is a smart guy. I am unfamiliar with anything he's done that would make me think that he'd be a great VP. He developed opportunity zones for low-income communities, and he discusses faith. I think he's a Christian, palatable. Obviously, it's a demographic checkbox, and with all due respect to Tim Scott, this has to do with him being black and Christy Nome being a woman. This is a reality that the Republican Party has decided they have to accept. Elise Stefanik as a VP pick for President Trump. Well, they've done everything they can to put her out front, to make her the voice of the party, because she's a woman, she's good at speaking. Uh, she also served on President Trump's impeachment defense team. She endorsed him ahead of his 2024 campaign. This is from The Hill, that's, that's thehill.com that's tracking all this. And these are their predictions. This is who they think is most likely. Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders. She's surprised me as governor. She's been a stalwart. Now, on this one, I could get behind this. Uh, she's good at war going to war with the media. She's done great things to protect her state against the sexual left and against uh, radical, they're all radical, uh, you know, hormones and, and uh, sexual mutilation surgeries for kids. 
One of the things that um, The Hill points out, they say Sanders standing in her home state could be problematic, though. An annual poll conducted by the University of Arkansas found 48% of those in the state approve of her job as governor, the lowest rating for an Arkansas governor since her father, Mike Huckabee, polled at 47% in 2003. Question is, is she going to be reelected? And I'm sure that the media in Arkansas is vitally friendly to Sarah Huckabee Sanders. So they go through some other people, um, Representative Byron Donalds. He's fantastic on camera, great speaker. I don't think he's done anything that this approaches um, being worthy to be VP personally. Nikki Haley, no, absolutely not. Nikki Haley hates President Trump. It's a thinly veiled hate. You can observe the way she acts. Mike Pompeo, no. There's a name missing in this. Revolver.news is really pushing Tucker Carlson to be President Trump's vice president. And it seems absurd. First of all, Tucker would probably have to give up his, uh, his Twitter show, which has done well, and I'm sure he's now making very good money at that. He'd have to give that up. Not that Tucker needs the money. That many years on TV at Fox News and running the Daily Caller, Tucker's fine with money, I'm sure. I'm sure of it. But Tucker as VP to President Trump isn't as absurd as you might think. After all, President Trump was a creation in some ways of the media. Tucker Carlson is a creation of the media. Tucker Carlson says things that aren't to be said about things that are not to be addressed. And he does it gladly and happily. And he does it very, very, very well. And he is loyal to President Trump as a person and as a policymaker. And more importantly, he's not afraid to criticize the president, as he did on his show. One thing, though, one thing, I've noticed that Tucker will not question President Trump about the gene-modifying, gene-sequencing devices some people still call COVID shots. He's had him on his program twice. That has never come up. Now, that might be an agreement between him and the campaign, and sometimes people in media make those agreements. Hey, you can have access to a guy, but you're not to ask these questions. I would just like Tucker to admit if that's the case. But what a fascinating approach that might be. On this program, Disciples View, we thank the Lord for placing people on high towers, looming towers of shaking sand to remind us that human wisdom is nothing. We do that in a feature we call the Tower of Babylon. You know about the biblical truth of the Tower of Babel. A Disciple's View presents... Who doesn't love a yellow school bus? Trans women are women, trans men are men, and non-binary people are non-binary. If the prosecutor's not fired, you're not getting the money. The Tower of Babylon. Speaking of President Trump, sometimes... Sometimes President Trump is his own worst enemy. Here he is on Fox News. I used to get along great with him, you know, when I was president. I had along, you know, got along really good, Gavin. Well, you got along with Gavin Newsom? I did. I really did. He was always very nice to me. He said the greatest things. He would say things like he's doing a great job. Oh, he was very nice. About you? About me. That's why I could never hit him, because he was so nice to me. That was back when Tucker worked at Fox before he was fired. And probably for saying too much against pharma, if you ask me. That's probably why I was fired. In politics, if you can't, quote, hit a person because they're nice to you, well, that is a huge problem. And in fact, from a perspective of actual honesty, it's a huge problem. 
And maybe it's just President Trump's deep emotional need to be liked because he likes that. And he needs to feel that people absolutely, absolutely are going to protect him forever and affirm him. That's, that's, that's a pretty big character flaw. Sometimes President Trump is his own worst enemy. That's the first of three audio clips in our Tower Babbling section for the day. This is James Carville. Remember Jimmy Carville? Who, he is the guy who got uh, Clinton elected to office. And very, very smart, and in my judgment, absolutely slimy political operator. He's the guy who famously said about Paula Jones, who I think Clinton sexually assaulted. I interviewed her way back in the day, started a Paula Corbin Jones defense fund, which got me an Art Bell show back when I was a young guy, just, just doing radio for the first time. What a night. I spent two hours on Art's show. Remember Art Bell? What a man. But by the way, an absolute gentleman. I'll have to talk about him one day. So I think that, that Clinton sexually assaulted Paula Paul Corbin Jones. Remember what Jimmy Carville said? It's amazing what happens when you take $20 and wave it through a trailer park. He was on with Bill Maher talking about the distinct dangers to America. You're talking about Christian nationalism. Absolutely. This is a bigger <clears throat> threat than Al-Qaeda. Up to this country, they and let me tell you something. They're Speaker of the House. They got probably at least two Supreme Court justices, maybe more. Right? Don't kid yourself. And, and people in the press have no idea who this guy is, how he was formed, what the threat is, and this is a fundamental threat to the United States. It is a fundamental. They don't believe in the Constitution. They'll tell you that. Mike Johnson himself says, what is democracy but, but two wolves and a lamb having lunch? That's what they really, really, really believe. And- the, the major threat from Mike Johnson, Speaker of the House, who is a discipled Christian, is exactly what? And where is the evidence that he doesn't back or believe in the Constitution? And by the way, that's not a bad description of democracy. It's a system. It's a pretty good system. If it's a Republican form of democracy, I think it's the best system, but it's exactly that. It's people who are otherwise enemies trying not to fight each other. Politics is war by peaceful means. Elections are revolutions by peaceful means. Sometimes more revolutionary than others. Last up today in this edition of the Tower Babbling, has to do with a dread new disease. Oh, it's coming. Well, but how do they know? Well, could the next pandemic make the height of the COVID-19 outbreak look mild? That's what some experts are predicting for what's being called disease X. So I am very worried that we, we just don't, uh, we as a nation, we haven't made that commitment to really fully protect the American we caught up with internationally recognized dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor and co-director of the Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development, Dr. Peter Hotez, who's traveling to get his take on the topic. We have a likelihood that new pandemic threats, that people call them disease X, are going to be rising on a regular basis. So Dr. Peter Hotez, who, by the way, was doing that interview leaning forward in a car, but was wearing his, uh, his, his seatbelt, thank you, 
He has never been right about anything related to COVID. Not a single time, not once in his career. He was wrong about the effectiveness of the injections. He said that they were going to be nearly 100% effective, if not 100%. He continued to be wrong and continued to change his stance. He continued to be wrong about masks and lockdowns, the harms of the injections. He's never been right about anything related to the injections. Furthermore, it's not his area of expertise in an era where we're told, wait a minute, you're not an immunologist. You're not allowed to talk about this. So how does he know that the next pandemic is going to be so much worse? Well, what if he's right? He's doing it to scare you to take the injections. That's his motive. He makes that clear. But what if he's right? Could there be a reason for this? Yes. Want to know why? Because the COVID shots themselves have destroyed the immune systems of many, many people. These people's bodies can no longer tell the difference between an allergent, something that will annoy the body but not harm it, and viruses. So at this point, Peter Hotez might have accidentally backed in to being right about COVID. And that is a wrap for today's Tower of Babylon. That was the Tower of Babylon. I don't have anything to share with all of you at this time. Uh, and uh, and I'll, just, I'll just leave it there. On a Disciple's View. Just a little uh, personal observation as we wrap up today, and I'm anxious to talk with you tomorrow. Uh, I've been praying very consistently that um, in, in, in regular get-togethers I have with a dear family member who I deeply love, that God Almighty would bring himself forward, that, that, that this family member would see him instead of me. And I pray every time we get together. And it's not, I'm not doing this to convert. I love this person. I'm doing it because I love being around them. And the other night when we got together, I simply told her a story about the high school boys I'm blessed to help lead, deciding to pray for a woman they never met while soaking in a cold lake with an old man. That was me. Her eyes teared up. Talk about our faith with everybody. We speak because we believe. We know that in the beginning, the word was with God and the word was God. And we're going to speak his word as long as we're able. Until we talk again, may God be with you. This is A Disciple's View. I'm Tom. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast do not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.